Tonight's scripture readings for Ascension Sunday are from John 16, 7, Acts 9, 1, 9 through 11, and Ephesians 4, 8. From John. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And from Acts. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And from Ephesians. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is the word of the Lord. This Saturday night, um, we will be having a prayer service um, following the pattern of Acts in Acts one fourteen. the night before Pentecost. They came together in one accord and prayed for the filling of the Spirit over the people and over the church. That will be upstairs. Actually, I think we're going to move it into the conference room and uh, not the chapel because I think we may... Uh, have a, a little more people than we did last year. Um, there was a tragedy this week. There were a number of tragedies. One of the stranger ones, if we could go to the next slide. Um, Eleven people died on Mount Everest. And uh, there was a traffic jam um, uh, beneath the summit. And they, they, uh, evidently what happens is that there's only a few weeks in May when conditions are ripe for reaching the summit, and they gave too many permits, and slower climbers clogged the trail up, and you had to make a decision, they call that the death zone, that either you reach your life dream of getting to the summit, or you take the risk of waiting and running out of oxygen, and uh, 11 um, died, and their uh, bodies remain 26,000 feet up and will for eternity. And there was an interesting article about this in a magazine called The Business Insider. And a psychologist was saying that one of the causes for deaths like this, which could easily have been prevented, was something he called summit fever, an obsession to reaching a goal that leads to bad decisions. And uh, he, he talked about how the social identity of the climbers becomes wrapped up in the story of reaching the summit that this is who I am. I am one of the few people who have reached the summit. And so the prospect of not making it is unbearable, and so uh, they die rather than returning home to safety. And this story made me think of a, of a chapter in a book by Sarah Wilson in a very kind of unusual and interesting exploration of anxiety. The book's called First We Make the Beast Beautiful, And of all the books I've been reading on anxiety this summer from um, writers not necessarily from a faith perspective, she is the first one to have a chapter that said, perhaps our anxiety comes from existential questions. Perhaps the reason why we are anxious 
is because our lives increasingly feel that we don't have meaning and purpose. That was very brave of her to, to raise that. Um, I, she never really answers that problem, um, but she at least raises it. Uh, maybe uh, we might say people are anxious today because they have no story that makes sense of their lives. Maybe that's why we're up at four in the morning. Well, one of the reasons that, that I am a Christian is because we do have a story that gives meaning and purpose to life. It's not a perfect story. It doesn't answer every question. It doesn't take away all pain. But it's a story with a lot of history behind it. It's a story millions of people have found meaningful for thousands of years. And it, it really uh, is a story that the, the, the peak of which kind of comes at ascension. And at the very essence, the big story of the Bible is God is with us and he invites us to join him in healing the world. And that story, the key, uh, the heart of uh, the drama of redemption is kind of brought to climax in, in the ascension of Jesus. The ascension, the incarnation we celebrate at Christmas and Easter are the three most important uh, events in, in the, the, the last part of Christ's life. But we don't talk a lot about the ascension of Jesus. Jesus seemed to be thinking about it uh, often, though. Uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended, the Son of Man. So in this very introductory conversation about faith, he decides to insert something about his future ascension. When the crowd of would-be disciples complained to Jesus in John 6 that his teaching's too hard, Jesus says, well, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Kind of like, you think this is hard. <laughs> what do you see what's going to happen? When Mary clings to Jesus outside the Easter tomb, Jesus says, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. He, he, he seems to be thinking about his ascension all the time. Um, and there's this beautiful motif that could be another Ascension story sermon of uh, descent and ascent. Descent and ascent. He descends in humility to save us. He ascends in glory to reign. And there are not many uh, portions of Scripture that talk about the Ascension. The only other place where we read about it described is the end of Luke's Gospel. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And this is a big part of the story that gives meaning and purpose to Christians' lives. And, and before we kind of unpack it a little bit, I, I want to stop for a second. What, are we, what does it really mean to believe in the ascension? It, it does sound somewhat like a fantasy or a fairy tale, something that that you wouldn't think would actually happen. But it's important that we talk about this a little bit because Jesus seemed to think it would happen. The writers of the epistles seemed to think it would happen. Uh, the whole hinge point of the Bible, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is built upon it happening. So we need to think a little bit as Christians about, you know, how could this make sense? Here's why I believe that the ascension really happened. And, and I know you cannot prove matters of faith. You, you can't. But you can 
make argument, put forth reasons about why you're putting faith in something makes sense. And so here are a couple of reasons why I believe in the ascension. First, I believe in an open and not a closed universe. I think the Western framework of reality is distorted and wrong and at times even evil. And that there is a spiritual world that is just as real as the material world. I believe in miracles. I believe God can and does intervene in life. Second, I believe there's sound historical evidence for Jesus rising from the dead. We've talked about that many Easter's. And if he actually rose from the dead, then it seems reasonable that he could also ascend to heaven. Third, and this one is, is a little odd, but it's something I think about. Welcome to my mind. Um, spiritual masters in other religious traditions are claimed to be able to transport themselves. Or if you've ever read Harry Potter, to disapparate. And you would be surprised how often spiritual masters are claimed to disapparate. And if highly evolved human beings are able to do this, spiritual masters and other traditions, then I have no trouble believing that the Son of God can. And then lastly, we don't need to be bound by pre-modern conceptions of the universe as, as a three-tiered world with heaven up there and, and hell below. That was how they saw the world. That's how they described it. Today we speak of different dimensions of reality. And so I think of the ascension of Jesus as Jesus stepping into another dimension of reality. Well, what does the ascension mean? How, how does it fit into the bigger story? Well, Jesus gives us a clue the night before his death. And if we could put John 16, 7 up there again. Um, not, nevertheless, uh, not quite. Back, yeah. Nevertheless, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, I have to go away so that the Spirit can come. He, he says, and as hard as this is to believe, he says that something is missing right now. Even though you have me, you do not have what you need to carry out your mission. Something's missing. Something has to happen before you can carry on your mission. And he's referring to a prophecy that says that one day the Holy Spirit will come to rest and indwell on all people. And that's the next verse there, Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now prophecy and dreams and visions were things that the prophets did in the Old Covenant. But only a handful of people could do that. And so the prophets are saying there'll come a day when everyone will have an intimate relationship in the new age of the Spirit. And Jesus is very aware of this. John the Baptist, of course, says that his baptism, I'm baptizing in water. This guy's going to baptize in the Spirit. This is something he came to do. John 7, 37 to 39, if we have this one. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Something had to happen for the Spirit to be poured out. Why? Well, if we piece together the teachings of the New Testament on the ascension, here's what had to happen in order for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on God's people. Satan had to be defeated. That had to happen before the Spirit could come. And if we have uh, the next slide When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, in other words, a victory train, and he gave gifts to men. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Again, victory over Satan. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, the position of authority and power with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. And again, if you're thinking, right hand, is he really sitting up there next to a throne? And again, they're using the language of their day to communicate spiritual truth as they know it. These are metaphors. We don't know perfectly what this is. The concept beneath it is that in the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ now has authority over demonic powers. That's the principle. Don't get caught up in the metaphor. And that had to happen for the spirit to be released. And you get the sense that the devil knows this in the Gospels. He knows that the the last thing he wants to have happen (laughs) is for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus is bad enough. But if the Holy Spirit comes, he knows that it's over. And you can, you can track this right. In the Gospels, 12 years, or rather 12 men, three years, stumble along, barely understand it. The Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 are converted, the church explodes all over the world. Um, the Holy Spirit needed to come. And so, to, to summarize all of this, uh, we could use this quote. The ascension sets the stage for seeing the descent of the Spirit as the continuing presence of God with his people. So that's why the ascension is so important to uh, the Christian life. It sets the stage for the continuing presence of God with his people. Now, what does that mean for us practically? Well, for starters, if we believe in the ascension, it does address some of the existential questions that keep us up uh, at night. We're not alone. God has made an extraordinary sacrifice so we can be with him. Life does have meaning. We're invited to be a part of Jesus' kingdom work by the Spirit. Death does not have the last word. The one who descended and then ascended has made it possible that we too might descend in death and ascend to eternal life. Chaos does not define the universe. Christ is Lord, somehow in the center of all the chaos of reality, a loving, wise person is present and working. There is guidance. The God of all wisdom is communicating even now through the Spirit. So the ascension is is a profound um, moment in the life of Christ and in the life of the church. But I want to end by, by just talking a little bit about this more personally. Those are wonderful theological truths and I think we need to affirm them. But what does it really mean to you 
personally that Christ ascended so that the Spirit could come, that Christ defeated Satan so that the Spirit could come. I, I don't know what it means to you personally, so I, I tried to think of what it means to me personally. And uh, I'll share a little bit about that. Maybe it'll stir up something in you. So as I've shared the last few weeks, as we went through all those texts on the Great Commission in the Gospels, and every time they ended by saying, wait for the Spirit, receive the Spirit, don't go without the Spirit, just this idea that we cannot be the people of God, I can't be a, the man of God I want to be apart from the Holy Spirit. And that, that we have to appropriate and be receptive to the Spirit to live the lives God calls us to live. Well, I've been asking the Lord, how can I be more receptive to the Spirit? If this is true, if this isn't just sort of like a metaphor or you know, a nice thought or a nice image, but this is actually a, a revolution in, in redemptive history that God's Spirit being present with us makes all the difference in the world, that Jesus said, don't even attempt this without the Spirit. If it's that true, how can I be more receptive to the Spirit? And I'd encourage you to ask that question. Um, During Pentecost, the five weeks of Pentecost, we're going to preach a little series on life in the Spirit. And I'd like you to ask yourself, how receptive am I to the Spirit? Uh, Jesus has done everything that he needed to do. Now it's, it's us. It's us creating a posture in our hearts so that we are receptive to the Spirit. Well, I was praying about this quite a bit lately. And as usual, for me, at this time in my spiritual life, I, I'm starting to dream about it. And uh, so I had this dream, lots of weird flying things I don't need to go into. But basically, uh, I'm trying to go to the beach. And I dream about the beach all the time because the beach and the ocean, for me, represent peace and wholeness in God and being at one with God. And so whenever I dream about the beach and the ocean... It's dreaming about drawing close to God. And in the dream, I can't find the beach, and my Google map won't open. And I am getting more and more furious, and I ask a person in the dream, won't you show me how to open my Google Maps, which if you're in my family, you know that that kind of question happens often about technological things. And, and no one will open my Google Maps. And I wake up furious. Do you ever have a dream when you wake up, I'm furious, and you realize it was a dream? Well, that was what happened to me. So I'm praying about it, and and here's what I think it means. I can't get to the beach with Google Maps anymore. I can't get to the presence of God with a shortcut. I can't get to the presence of God with the newest technology. I, I can't get to the presence of God with logic. It's not going to work for me. Can't take a shortcut. I mean, if there were an app for knowing God, you know, I'd love to have the patent on it, but I don't think there's going to be one. So I said, well, well, Lord, if I, if I can't use Google Maps, how do I get to the beach? And, and, and I thought he said, you got to do it the old-fashioned way. And so we talked a little bit about that. And he reminded me of four ways. And this is kind of what it's looking like for me right now. He just said, prayer. If you want to be more receptive to me, spend more time in prayer. 
Well, Lord, what kind of prayer? I don't care what kind of prayer. Spend more time in prayer. And so I am. This summer, our uh, the swim team's going later than normal. I get home late. We don't have a lot of time left. Uh, we decide in the summer we're not going to spend you know time watching TV and stuff. So we sit out on the porch for the last half hour of the night, and we get quiet. We check in on the day, and then we spend just 15, 20 minutes just in prayer, just quiet, just listening. Boy, I'm sleeping good. You know, by the way, that's a great way to end your day, I think, anytime. Just being quiet with the Lord. And I am having an intense desire to pray with other people for the coming of the kingdom in a way I haven't felt in years. I can't describe it. I'm having an intense desire to pray with other people for the kingdom of God. Second uh, is fasting. This keeps coming up in prayer. I've mentioned that in the past that became kind of a legalistic burden to me. But the past can't keep you from your future with the Spirit. And so I've been asking asking the Lord, what, what does fasting in the Spirit look like? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit in fasting? So fasting is becoming more a part of my spiritual discipline again. A third word I'd use that he's been showing me is heart. Um, my, my spiritual journey has been very much informed by books, and I think that is good. It's one way of learning. It's one way of knowing. But the Bible talks about another way of knowing through the heart. The eyes of our, but may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, Paul prays. And, and I, I don't know if you're connecting with this. this is, maybe this is more just my own journey. But I feel like God is saying, you're at a point now where I want you to learn how to know with your heart and not your head. You've read enough books. Now, I'm still going to read books. I mean, I'm not, But I really have sensed him say, you have read enough books. The kind of knowing for the last part of your journey is intuitive. It's subjective. It's things you don't understand at all. Now, next week, uh, we're going to start that series. <laughs> and I want to explain this because you're going to think I'm a hypocrite. But um, I was praying, Lord, how do I talk about life in the Spirit in a way that just isn't boring and academic? How do you invite people into life in the Spirit? And, and I sensed them say, well, how did you begin your life in the Spirit? And immediately five books came to mind. <laughs> One written by Bill Bright, I read in 1979. Four others that I read between 1987 and 1993. And I'm going to do some, a series on the five books that shape my life in the Spirit Going over one book a week. But wait, before you send the email, I promise you it'll be more than a book report. Uh, I want to identify the spiritual principle in the book and then try to move into the heart. How it's affected my heart and how it might affect your heart. And then the last thing he's talking to me about in terms of this idea of spiritual receptivity, being receptive to the spirit, And I'm asking you to consider, how can I be more receptive to the Spirit? The last thing he's talking to me about is is, uh, uh, my body. To learn to pay attention to my body as a way of of listening to the Spirit. That's totally a new idea. I usually just focus on my mind. But if, if our body are filled with the Spirit, our temples of the Spirit, 
then maybe we should pay more attention. And, and it's, it's, real, it's real simple, and this sounds kind of silly, and I, I'm still trying to figure it out. It's right now two things. It's when I'm praying and reading scripture, I'm paying attention to what's happening in my body. And as, as a man, you know, well, let's not, let's not go there. Men are not great at, uh, we feel things, but they're usually not very spiritual. So I'm trying to learn, <laughs> uh, how do I get out of this one? Okay, <laughs> you know where I'm going here. So the idea that God is speaking through my body has never occurred to me because I'm usually trying to tell my body to, to go away or shut up or something like that. So, but this idea that the Spirit could actually be speaking to me through my body. The second thing is, when I'm in a, converse, a spiritual conversation with somebody trying to help them to pay attention to what's happening in my body. And I'm actually finding that, you know, if my neck is stiff, if my stomach is upset, if I have a headache, that's actually the Holy Spirit telling me something about what's going on in the room. So, how receptive are you to the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is always available, but our posture determines how we receive the Spirit. So, one homework assignment for you this week as we prepare for Pentecost is, what is one way you can become more receptive to the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't know. Ask Him. He'll tell you. Let's pray.